You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Even though we wrapped up chapter 2 and discussed it last week in our C groups, chapter 3 continues right on with the theme that Paul's been teaching, that there is coming a horrific time on this earth where... um, Deception is going to set in because Satan is going to bring to power this man of lawlessness, this antichrist, who will seek to destroy the effectiveness of the gospel, who will seek to deceive individuals to walk away from the faith and to instead follow after an antichrist. Um, and so Paul has been warning this church to be on guard, to be prepared by anchoring into the truth standing firm, preparing for this type of deception. And Paul has also followed that up with encouragement after encouragement that they will stand firm, that they will make it to the end, that ultimately the man of lawlessness will deceive no one who is really saved, that only those who were already perishing, only those who had already chosen not to believe the truth will be ones who will follow this antichrist. And the Antichrist only comes on the scene when King Jesus allows him to. Um, And it's for God's glory that God allows this to happen, that he allows this man to rise uh, so that it can become very clear who belongs to God and who doesn't. So that when Jesus returns, the line has been divided and and he comes to bring relief to his saints, as we've already seen in chapter 1. And he comes to bring affliction and revenge upon those that have been attacking the faith. We saw in chapter 2, as it kind of wrapped up, um, encouragement that Paul gives in light of everything that he said for this church to stand firm. So we'll start reading again in chapter 2, verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in truth. Now, we said uh, some different ways to avoid deception. The first being to be saved. The only way to avoid this coming deception is to be saved, to respond to the gospel. And Paul praises God, not this church, but he praises God for the salvation of this church. He doesn't elevate this church and say, Man, I'm so proud of you guys for becoming Christians. I'm so proud that you chose to follow Jesus. He praises God and says, God, thank you for calling these people to salvation. Thank you for saving these people. Thank you for working in their heart and drawing them to you. Praise goes to God for these people's salvation is for God's glory. To this, he calls you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Not only does God save them, he calls them to sanctification by the spirit. He he makes them holy. It's because these people did respond to that gospel. They did respond to the truth. And now he tells them to stand firm, to hold to the traditions that they were taught by Paul and his his companions, his missionary companions. Stand firm to the traditions that you were taught. And we said traditions not meaning church history traditions, but the traditions of the gospel, the traditions of the word that had been preached by Paul, that had been received from God. 
And I challenged you um, two weeks ago that our, our standing firm, our consistency in following Jesus, it can't rely on people around us. Yes, God gives us a church family to be a part of, to encourage us, to help us press on in the faith. But if our devotion to the faith is based on somebody else's devotion to the faith, meaning that if there was somebody in your life that were to walk away from the faith and that would cause your faith to crumble, then you're standing firm not on the traditions of the gospel, but you're standing firm on the example of somebody else. And if that example stops, then you too walk away from the faith. We need to be so anchored into the truth of the gospel. We need to be so anchored in to what God says in his word, that if everybody in this church stopped following Jesus, that you would continue to follow Jesus. That you don't follow Jesus because other people are. You follow Jesus because you have, you have believed the traditions of the gospel that have been passed down from the apostles, passed down through church history that we have received today. Somebody communicated it to us, but we received the gospel, the truth of the gospel, the traditions of God's word. So we're to be saved to avoid deception. We're to stand firm. We said in, in your notes there, number one, we must believe the truth. We must be acceptors of the faith. If we do this, then God promises we will stand firm. We will make it to the end. We won't walk away from the faith. We won't abandon Christ. We will make it to the end. Secondly, we must hold to the truth. We're to defend the faith. We're to claim the faith. We're to hold fast to the faith. So even though Paul assures this church, you're going to make it, you're not going to be deceived, he still comes back with the command to defend the faith, hold fast to the faith, stand firm. I'm telling you that you will stand firm, but I'm also telling you to stand firm. And then number three, we must practice the truth. We must practice the truth. We must be demonstrators of the faith. He says in verse 16, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, our father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. God desires to change both our actions, our, our works and the things that we say, the things that we believe. So God establishes us in the faith. He wants us to demonstrate that faith. He wants us to stand firm. Which brings us to chapter three today. As we continue to talk about avoiding deception, we're going to see that Paul encourages this church to speed ahead now. So to avoid deception, we're to be saved, we're to stand firm, but we're also to speed ahead in the gospel, both in proclaiming the gospel and speed ahead in allowing the gospel to continue to change us and to make us into what God desires us to be. Avoiding deception, speeding ahead. In your notes there, number four, we must share the truth. We must become communicators of the faith. We must help others stand firm. Chapter three, verse one. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. 
I find it interesting that everything at the end of chapter two seems so sure of happening. You are going to stand firm. You are going to make it to the end. The gospel is going to have effect in your life. You are going to be sanctified. You are going to reach that day of glorification. Everything that it's at the end of chapter two seems so sure of happening. Like it's guaranteed. God will do this. And then chapter three begins with a plea to pray that it'll happen. To make sure that it happens. So sure of happening. It's definitely going to happen. And then chapter three, Paul says, pray that this will happen. And it continues that tension that we've seen in scripture over the past few weeks, that there's a sovereign God who is in control of everything. And yet we see passages like this that shows us that man has responsibility in God's plan. That God determines everything, that he's sovereign, that he's in control. Nothing happens that God doesn't allow to happen. And yet within that, God says, you've got to do this. You have to take responsibility. You have to respond to the faith. I'm going to hold you accountable if you don't respond to the faith. So we see tension here in chapter 2 as we wrap it up. Everything will happen just like God wants it to. And then Paul says in chapter 3, you need to pray for this to happen. You need to pray for this to happen. Some initial thoughts that I wrote down in, in my notes. One, it's a sign of humility for Paul to ask for prayer from new believers. It shows he's not relying on himself to do this alone. Paul could easily say, man, I'm so, so happy what you new believers are doing over in Thessalonica. That's cute. You guys are growing in your faith. You're growing in your love. One day you'll be like me out planting churches all the time. But right now you guys just need to continue to establish yourself in the faith. Stand firm. Hold fast. Jesus hasn't come yet. Why would you even think that he has? We talked about that issue going on at the beginning of chapter 2. He could easily dismiss these guys and say, you have no value to me. I'm valuable to you. I'm helping you stand firm, but you guys are new in the faith. I'm going to rely on, on uh, Timothy and Silas over here, guys that are, that are a little bit more farther in the faith. But no, he says, I need you new believers to pray for me. I need you guys to pray that I will be faithful to share the gospel, that I'll be effective in sharing the gospel. So it's an act of humility here for Paul not to think that he can do this on his own, that he needs the prayer of other believers in his life, praying that he'll be effective in his ministry. Secondly, I think it's important to see that new believers can unleash God's power through prayer. New believers can unleash God's power through prayer. Prayer doesn't become something that becomes effective once you reach a level of spiritual maturity. Prayer doesn't get answered because people are more spiritually mature than others. This is new believers here that are praying for this, that Paul's saying, pray for this. And I would say Paul has to expect that their prayers are going to be answered. So it teaches us that new believers can unleash the power of God just like an old believer can. He calls upon these new believers to pray, to pray for him and his ministry. Third, I think we see ultimately the success of the gospel is contingent on a faithful Lord not a faithful people. Paul draws our attention to the fact that, yes, the gospel will be effective. Yes, the gospel will accomplish what it's supposed to. But it's because God is faithful. He says, not everybody responds to the faith, but the Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful. We highlighted this in 2 Timothy a couple weeks ago. That even us making it to the end... Us being faithful to the end is not contingent on, on how good we do at that. 
that we at times demonstrate a lack of faith. But God is faithful for us. Jesus works faith in us. Jesus makes sure that we stay faithful to the end. That's why the Holy Spirit indwells us. That's what's so special about the new covenant is that we get the law written on our hearts. We get the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who seals us to the day of redemption. The gospel and its effectiveness is not contingent on how good we are at sharing the gospel. It's not contingent on how faithful we are with the gospel. It's contingent on a faithful Lord. And I'm so thankful for that this morning. Because I know if it was left up to my faithfulness, the gospel would fail. Number four in my notes, the initial thoughts, Jesus clears the way for the gospel to both be accepted and for it to flourish in those who accepted it. Jesus clears the way for the gospel to both be accepted and for it to flourish in those who accepted it. Going back to verse one, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. Paul's admitting the gospel is not going to go where it needs to go. And it's not going to be received the way that I want it to be received unless God does it. He says, in and of my own efforts, I can't just go share the gospel at work and have people get saved and it all be about me and my effectiveness in sharing the gospel. He says, I'm out here trying to plant churches. I'm over here in Corinth trying to share the gospel with people. I need you to pray that it will speed ahead in their life, that it will be effective and be honored in their life. Then he goes further on talking about back to the church at Thessalonica in verse five. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God. And to the steadfastness of Christ. He says, I'm praying the same thing for you guys. That the gospel will continue to speed ahead in your life. And your hearts will be directed to love God more. To rest in his love more. That you will be motivated to be steadfast. Because you rely on the steadfastness of Jesus. Jesus clears the way. For the gospel to be effective. There's athletic analogy that Paul uses in this passage. When he talks about the word speeding ahead and being honored, it's athletic terms that are being used there. It's the picture of a race. And he personifies the gospel. He says, let the gospel continue to run this race. Let it speed ahead past other religions, past other philosophies. Let it speed ahead and let it be honored by the people that hear it. And then... Paul comes back with the direct your hearts to the love of God. It's the same word that he uses in 1 Thessalonians 3. Yeah, 1 Thessalonians 3. Remember when Satan was hindering him from getting back to that church? He prays that God will direct their path, that he will clear the way. That he will clear the way. Now, since Paul likes to use sports analogies, I'm going to use a sports analogy for you to help you see how God does everything in this passage. God does everything in this passage. Now, football analogy. If you don't like football, hopefully you can understand what's happening here. This is a football formation. This is the formation that my team won the state championship with last year. It's an unconventional formation. You don't see this typically. Okay. What you have here is a running back or a quarterback. And you have three fullbacks, basically. is what we would call this in, on our team. You got the defense that lined up like this. 
consistently in the championship game. And all we did over and over and over, it's boring as a play caller, it's boring as an offensive guy, because I know what play we're going to run. We're going to run hammer blast right, and we're going to run it until you stop it, and you're never going to stop it, and you're never going to stop it, and no team ever stopped it. The only game we lost, we lost because we quit, we quit running this play. If we had just stayed with this play, we would have gone undefeated. In this play, we uh, have a blocking scheme where everybody just blocks down. So if the ball's going right, you block everybody left. That's all you have to do. Um, so in this formation, this guy's blocking this guy. This guy's coming out and blocking this guy. This guy's blocking this guy. This guy's blocking this guy. This guy pulls, blocks this guy. These guys go this way. They block this guy. If this guy tries to come, we've still got an extra blocker, and we still got this guy with the ball. We just out-block him. Nobody can tackle our guy. Now, what we did, it didn't matter who we put in this position right here. We'd stick different guys in this position. We always picked a fast guy because he could speed ahead. But it didn't matter who we put here. We knew that we had more blockers than these guys could, block, that could get around, and we could go anywhere we wanted to go. Now, in the NFL, there are teams that, that kind of model this. They pay big money to these guys and their blockers in the backfield, and they just plug whoever they want in at running back. Washington Redskins do this because of their head coach. He came from Denver. He's now in Washington. They don't care who their running back is. They pay big money to their line. They pay big money to their scheme. And they just plug whoever they want to at running back. They picked a guy in the sixth round this year. And he went crazy running the ball. Not because he's that good. It's because everybody else is blocking really, really good. What Paul's communicating here is that Jesus clears the way so that the gospel can speed ahead. It doesn't matter who you put here in our offense. These are the guys that deserve the credit. They make it happen. They clear the way, and this guy just speeds ahead, and he scores touchdowns. These are the guys that deserve the credit. They clear the way. Paul's saying that God clears the way for the gospel. He does everything necessary. He removes the evil hindrances. He makes it effective in the hearts of the people that, that are hearing it. He directs our hearts, those of us that are already saved. He continues to make the gospel speed ahead in our life so that we understand God's love more, so that we are persevering and holding to Christ. God clears the way. He gets the glory for it, which means it doesn't matter who is sharing the gospel. It's going to be effective because he's the one making it effective. The gospel speeds ahead because God clears the way. He makes it possible for the gospel to be effective. So Paul's saying, you pray for this. Don't rely on your effectiveness. Don't think it's all about you and how good you are at sharing the gospel and how good you are at following Jesus. You pray for God to do what he promised that he'll do, that he'll clear the way so that the gospel speeds ahead. So in your notes, we must share the truth, communicators of the faith. What I see here is that prayer is a necessary ingredient to God's plan to save. Prayer is a necessary ingredient to God's plan to save. So we've already seen passages of scripture. God knew before the beginning of time who was going to be saved. We see that, 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 that names were written in the book of life before time began. And those people are in heaven in the future. John sees them. 
praising, worshiping God for eternity. So we even have the end of the story. We have this understanding from Scripture that everybody that was going to ever be saved, God knew about it before the beginning of time. And we have the end of the story that everybody that God intended to save gets saved. Which means in between, nobody that God thought was going to get saved fails to get saved. God doesn't forget to get the gospel to somebody and he thinks, oh man, before time, Jesse was supposed to get saved and I forgot to communicate the gospel. I forgot to send somebody with the gospel to Jesse and now he's not in heaven, he's in hell. No, everybody that God intended to save before the beginning of time gets saved. And nobody surprises God. Nobody shows up as it all plays out and says, actually, I think I want to accept the truth. And God says, whoa, whoa, I didn't write your name down before, the, before, before time began because I didn't think you were going to get saved. And now you've changed it up on me. No. God knows how it plays out. And sometimes we can take those truths. We can, we can praise the sovereignty of God too much in the sense that we then say, I don't have a role to play in this. I'm not responding. I can kick back. I can sit back, watch God do all this stuff. He's not going to use me in it. And yet Paul calls us to the opposite. He says, you pray for this to happen. Prayer is a necessary ingredient. It unleashes God's plans. It unleashes God's plans. Let me ask you this question. I want you to, to ponder it for just a second, and then I'll get some feedback from you guys. Does prayer change God's mind? Does prayer change God's mind? Prayer changed God's mind. Let's get some feedback on that. Yes, no. How do you understand a correct answer to that sentence? Does prayer change God's mind? Does it change events? Does it change how things happen? Okay. Other thoughts on prayer changing God's mind, changing events. Yes, no. Okay. <laughs> you don't have to. I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. Nobody else knows what you're saying. 
<laughs> Changes his mind? Okay. 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 Other thoughts on prayer and how it changes things? Okay. Okay. Any other thoughts on that? I don't know. I want to read to you what one commentator um, says. I really like the way that he says it. Um, if I gave you all enough time, we would all, I think, say the exact same thing. It's a matter of how we word it. And I think the wordage is important. And I think it's important for us to, us to understand how it works. It says, this is a, a quote from a guy named Roger Nicole. There are people who feel that unless you are prepared to say that prayer can change God's mind and plan, there is no great value in prayer. If you, can believe, if you believe you can change the mind of God through prayer, I hope you are using some discretion. If that is the power you have, it is certainly a most dangerous thing. Surely God does not need our counsel in order to set up what is desirable. Surely God, whose knowledge penetrates all minds and hearts, does not need to have us intervene to tell him what he ought to do. The thought that we are changing the mind of God by our prayers is a terrifying conception. I'll be frank to confess, if I really thought I could change the mind of God by praying, I would abstain. Because I would have to say, how can I presume with the limitations of my own mind and the corruptions of my own heart? How can I presume to interfere in the counsels of the almighty? No, our minds are too puny to be able to give God advice. It's almost as if you were to introduce somebody who is utterly ignorant of electronics 
to a nuclear weapons facility and you let that person into the operations room, though they were untrained, and told them to go on and push whatever buttons they thought appropriate. By so doing, you might precipitate an accidental explosion. There is comfort for the child of God in being assured that our prayers will not change God's mind. This is not what is involved in prayer, and we are not in danger of precipitating explosions by some rash desire on our part. So he's saying that if we have the ability to to change things with our prayers, then it's a dangerous thing. Because I would say most of us have all prayed for things to happen that didn't happen, and we look back on it and say, praise be to God that he didn't do what I prayed to do. But it's correct to say that prayer changes things from our perspective, and yet it doesn't change anything from God's perspective. If God intends to do what he intends to do before the foundations of the world, that can't be changed. And yet, because God is determined to do what he's going to do, he's also determined to do it by answering prayer. So, does God intend to save the children of Israel in Exodus when they've rebelled and sinned against him? Absolutely. But he also planned to do it through a response to Moses' prayer. So Moses changes what he believed to be the course of history. Had Moses not prayed, God would have done what he said he was going to do. And yet God ordains it that he changes things just like he wanted to change them. So it's, it's, it's something that you have to wrestle with. And I promise you the first time that I started studying, does God change? I felt like it blew a circuit in my mind. And I was sick for a couple of weeks because I had to think so much about how do I pray? How do we see passages of scripture where God seems to be changing and yet trust in a God who doesn't change? And ultimately, it's because God ordains to do what he wants to do through answering prayer. So Paul tells him here, pray, pray that the gospel will be effective, not to change and have people get saved that weren't going to get saved. But so that people will get saved just like God wanted to do it. And he's going to do it in answer to your prayer. So he says, pray for the gospel. Pray for it to be effective. Prayer is God's ordained way of making things happen. It gets us in line with God's plan. Now, I want you to note the amount of change that takes place in this passage. And we see that ultimately it's us that experiences the change. Again, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. We see hearts being changed. We see faith being established. We see love being increased. We see perseverance being produced. And it's all change that takes place in us. God changes us through answering our prayers. And he changes the way that the history was going. He changes the events of history as an answer to our prayer, just like he intended history to go moving forward. He allows us to participate in that plan. We don't just to get to kick back and say, God's going to do what he's going to want to do. And I don't have to do anything. No, God says, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And I'm going to do it through answering your prayers. And you're going to pray exactly what I want you to pray. And I'm going to respond exactly how I intended to respond. 
Paul's prayer here in this passage ultimately is to advance the word and to deliver us from evil. It's gospel focused and it's not me focused. And ultimately, I think Paul's showing that prayer shows that we believe that God is the one that saves. Without him, without the word, people cannot be saved. It'd be like trying to score the touchdown in the championship game without your fullbacks. The way's not clear. You try to do it in your own effort. You try to do it on your own abilities. You get tackled behind the line. God clears the way. It's he that sets the stage for people to get saved. It's he that accomplishes salvation, not us. We deliver it. We deliver it. We deliver the message. But it's ultimately all because God cleared the way that it gets accepted. All right, I'm going to give you three things that Paul tells us to pray for in this passage. And then a fourth encouragement as we pray. Number one, pray the word goes out quickly. First thing Paul tells them to pray for, pray that the word goes out quickly. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead. We see similar prayers by Paul in Ephesians chapter 6. After he wraps up his discussion on the whole armor of God, he says in verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. We've already participated that in, in that together this morning as we prayed for both Jake and Tom as they go to their workplaces, praying that they will be bold to speak, praying that they will have the correct words to speak to these individuals, praying that they will have wisdom to speak to the questions that these guys have. Paul prayed the exact same thing. He asked for prayer for the exact same thing. Pray that I will be effective because if it's just me doing it, I won't be. If it's just me toting the ball, I'm not getting to the end zone. I need somebody to clear the way. I need Christ to clear the way so that I can deliver the gospel and it be effective. He also says the same thing in Colossians chapter 4. Again, this is the, the master church planter, the master evangelist asking for prayer from new believers saying, I can't do this unless God does it. And God's going to do it. God's going to save these people. He's going to change their course in history. He's going to rescue them from hell as an answer to your prayers. Colossians 4, verse 2, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. I mean, Paul, the guy who, who's, who's written books of the Bible on the gospel. I mean, he wrote the book of Romans, which is a, a big expounding of the gospel. He says, pray for me that I'll speak the gospel clearly. I mean, if anybody knows how to communicate the gospel to different types of people, it's Paul. Paul says, I know how to become different kinds of people based on the type of people that I'm interacting with. I know how to make the gospel relevant to individual people. And yet Paul says, pray for me. Pray that I'll make it clear. Pray that I'll be able to speak it clearly to these individuals. It would be a, a, a complete statement of pride on our part to not follow this example of saying, I need people praying for me that I'll be effective in, gospel, in, in gospelizing people that I'm around at work. That's why we have our salvation prayer list. That's why we talk about it in our C groups. Not just so that you can hold me accountable to sharing the gospel with, with my friend Joe, but so that you'll pray for me. Pray that I'll be effective. Pray that God will clear our schedules so that we can sit down and talk. 
Pray that God will open his heart so that he'll hear the gospel and respond to it. Pray that I'll have words to clearly communicate it. As much as I share the gospel, as much as I teach the gospel both here and at school, pray that when that time comes, I'll speak it clearly, that I'll be bold in it. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's asking us to to pray in the same way for each other as we try to share the gospel with people in our lives. Pray the word speeds ahead like a runner in a race. I think it's important to note that we give legs to the gospel. It doesn't run ahead without us taking it to others. See, we we have to put somebody here on our football team. It doesn't matter who we put here, really. We can use whoever. But there has to be somebody running the ball. God can clear the way. But he's designed it that individual human beings have to take the gospel. His normal way of of doing this is not to send angels to individuals overseas to share the gospel with them. He doesn't let them find books buried in the ground from him that tell them how to get saved. Romans 10 says they will not respond unless they hear. And they won't hear unless you go tell them the gospel. So we, we help the gospel speed ahead by being its legs, by running it to these individuals. God clears the way. He calls us to participate by being that running back who takes the gospel. Take it all the way to the end zone. Let it be honored in the people that receive it. But don't think that you really did anything because I cleared the way. I'm the one that blocked everybody. I'm the one that kept everything wide open for you to run to the end zone. But you be the legs for the gospel. You take it to these individuals. Paul's praying that he will be faithful in doing that. Number two, pray the word goes out and is readily accepted. Don't just pray that I'll be faithful in sharing the gospel. Pray that it will be honored, Paul says. Pray that it'll be honored, that it'll be received, that it will be believed. Remember, in his mind, he's thinking Antichrist is coming. Deception is coming. I'm getting the gospel to individuals that need to believe it. Pray that it will be honored. Pray that these individuals will receive it, believe the truth, and pass from the Antichrist side of things into the Jesus side of things. Pray that when Jesus returns, they are found now to be on his side and not on the wrong side. Pray the word goes out and is readily accepted. Pray it's honored, accepted rightly. And not rejected. Pray that it has victory over the hearts of men. And and, and he can refer back to what happened in Thessalonica. Going back to chapter 1 in 1 Thessalonians. You'll remember a couple of years ago when we were in chapter 1. Verse 5. It says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. And with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You became imitators of us. This is the example that Paul's praying for. He says, pray that it happens like it happened with you guys. It came in power, Holy Spirit, conviction. You guys responded. You started imitating us. You started pursuing Jesus. He says, I've got a good reference point. You, you're my reference point. Pray that it happens just like it happened with you. Our encouragement to pray for others' salvation flows from the confidence of our own salvation. Paul references that. 
pray that the, the word will speed ahead and be honored as it happened among you. The encouragement to pray for others' salvation flows from the confidence of our own salvation. Pray that what happened to you happens to others. Think about that. Sometimes we get together as guys and we talk and we, we talk about the discouragement of not seeing people get saved. And we had a big discussion about this with our pizza and theology night a couple of weeks ago. And as men, what we had to really confess was, is we're not really faithful to share the gospel. Like the incidences that we do refer to, people didn't respond. But honestly, over the past five, ten years, whatever it was you want to talk about, the amount of times that we've shared the gospel with individuals was minimal. Paul says the gospel works. It works inside of you. You know it works because you responded to it. So you can pray confidently that it'll happen in others because you're the best example of it. You're the best example of it. You don't have to doubt whether or not it works or not. You don't have to doubt whether people really respond to the gospel today. You did. It happened in you. Pray that it'll happen in others just like that. It means that we've got to be confident in our own salvation. Really believe that we're saved so that we can pray that others will be saved. I posted a quote this week by J.D. Greer. Your spiritual life will never take off until you're sure you belong to God. When we truly understand that we've been accepted by God, then we can really become an effective minister for him because we can pray that the same thing will happen in others. Number three, not only do we pray that the word goes out quickly, not only do we pray that it goes out and is readily accepted. Number three, we pray that the word goes out unhindered. Unhindered. He says in verse two that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not all have faith. So we say the gospel works. You're evidence of that, but don't be discouraged by those who reject it. You're not going to see everybody that you share the gospel with get saved. Paul offers that encouragement. He says, not everybody has faith. Pray that the gospel will speed ahead. But pray that we're protected from the people that don't receive this because not everybody's going to believe it. Not everybody's going to believe it. Isaiah 55 gives us encouragement. Isaiah 55, 8 through 11 tells us that God's word won't return void. That it'll accomplish what it sets out to accomplish. But even our Lord Jesus saw people reject his gospel. And, and if Jesus couldn't or, or, or wouldn't allow the gospel to be effective in everybody's life, how can we expect that, that our gospel presentations will? We see the rich young ruler say, what do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus starts communicating gospel, and the guy walks away before he can even finish, really. We've got a whole large group of them that walk away when he starts talking about eating my flesh and drinking my blood. It says that they never walked with him again. We've got Judas, a man that he invested in for three years, one of his closest disciples that betrays him. I think Jesus includes those encounters in Scripture if for no other reason to simply encourage us that how should we expect to be perfect in our gospel presentations, in our discipleship and endeavors, if even Jesus saw people that fall away, that rejected the gospel. So Paul says, pray for this, but understand not everybody has faith. I need to be delivered from those people. The prayer of deliverance is not comfort motivated, though. It's gospel motivated it's not comfort motivated it's gospel motivated he's not praying that 
that he'll be saved from these individuals because he wants to have a comfortable life. He's essentially praying that God will deliver him from these wicked men who are trying to stop the gospel. We know, we know that Paul's not praying for comfort because we see in other passages where he's completely uncomfortable and yet praising God over the fact that the gospel's going out. In Philippians 1.12, Paul's in prison. I mean, he's in jail. There aren't many of us that would be okay with being in jail this morning. None of us would consider that an okay scenario. But in Philippians 1.12, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the truth without fear. Paul says, craziest thing, I'm in jail, I'm completely uncomfortable, but people are hearing the gospel, responding to it. And people that see me in jail, see me joyful in jail, are having more courage to proclaim the gospel. Paul doesn't pray, hey, pray that God will get me out of jail. He just sends a report and says, hey, I'm in jail, but things are good. The gospel is going out. Paul doesn't pray for personal comfort. He always prays that in the midst of his circumstances, the gospel will be advanced. 2 Timothy 2. Second Timothy 2, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they, may, they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Again, Paul references, I'm in jail. I'm bound like a criminal, but the gospel is not bound. Therefore, I endure these uncomfortable circumstances. And the reason I endure it is so that people that need the gospel get it. He goes on in chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. I have no idea what this guy did. Um, Paul is clearly not happy with this coppersmith, though. Uh, he says in verse 15, be aware of him yourself, for he strongly opposes our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. There's that scenario we talked about being left alone in your faith. Will you stand firm? May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul doesn't pray for personal comfort. He prays that the gospel will be advanced. His prayer is for outside threats to be removed. Remember, Satan hindered him from getting to Thessalonica. Remember the, the parable that, that, that Jesus told about Satan coming in, the sower and the seed coming in and snatching the seed away so that people don't hear it and they don't respond to it. That's what Paul was concerned about. Now imagine if our prayer life was radically changed not to pray for personal comfort, when uncomfortable circumstances are thrown our way, 
but to pray that the gospel is advanced in the middle of those difficult circumstances. Too often times we focus on God change my circumstances, change what I'm going through. Imagine what our prayers would look like if we said, God, here's what I'm going through. Advance the gospel in this. Yes, from my perspective, I want my my circumstances changed. But what I ultimately want is for the gospel to be advanced. And if it takes these circumstances, something as extreme as being in jail, something as extreme as losing a house, losing everything that you have, that our prayers would be advance the gospel as my number one priority. Then we'll worry about my circumstances. I want to challenge you to examine your prayers and how you're praying for things in your life. Are you praying for circumstances to be changed? Are you praying for hearts to be changed? Or is it gospel focused? Is it me focused? Is it your personal comfort that's being the focus of your prayers? Or the advancement of the gospel? That's what Paul was concerned about praying for. Remove these hindrances so that the gospel can speed ahead. Number four, pray knowing you pray to a faithful Lord. That's the encouragement. The things that we pray for, pray that the gospel speeds ahead. Pray that it goes out and it's honored and accepted. Pray that it's unhindered. And then Paul throws it in here for us as a, as a big encouragement. Remember that you're praying to a faithful Lord. One who will answer these prayers. Paul's confidence about the success of the gospel It's not based on his efforts to share it. It's not based on the church's efforts to pray for it. It's based on the Lord's faithfulness to save people. Make sure you get that. Paul's confidence about people standing firm on that day. It's not based on his effectiveness and his faithfulness to share the gospel. And it's not based on his belief that the church will pray for him. It's based on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That's where his confidence lays. His confidence lays Paul has current confidence about the gospel and future confidence in the gospel. He turns his attention in verse 3 now to them. He's asking for prayer for himself, but then he turns his focus to them. And I think it's a picture of what he's praying for for them. And the confidence that he has that it will be answered. Verse 3, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Paul has confidence about the gospel in their life right now. He says, God's going to establish you. He's going to, att- he's going to continue to anchor you into the faith. And he's going to make sure that you're guarded on that day when the Antichrist comes. A future confidence in the gospel for them. Because God is faithful. That's where his confidence lies. He has confidence in the future of the gospel and the current state of the gospel in their life. He says things like, you will do the things we command. God will establish you. He will guard you. The Antichrist won't break you. He won't deceive you. Remember, the Paul has, has over and over praised this church by praising God for the work that he's done in them for their obedience. This, this church has been very obedient. They've been imitators. They've responded all along the way. To Paul's commands. That's why he says, you've been faithful to obey. And I trust that you will continue to be faithful. Because in verse 6, he's about to lay it down for them. That something has gone wrong in their church. So he, he's preemptive in the discussion by saying, 
You guys have been so faithful, and I trust that you are going to continue to be faithful to what I command. Because I'm about to command something, and you need to be obedient to it. But he's ultimately trusting in the faithfulness of God in their life, not their own faithfulness. The command, this word command, it got me thinking about the seriousness of that word. And how a lot of times I'll meet with individuals and I'll, I'll make suggestions. I'll give advice, things that could be taken or, or not be taken. But Paul is, is offering up commands here. It's commands. He says, you have to do this. You have to be obedient to this. And it got me thinking about that word and, and how I believe we too are commanded to command others. It's a military order passed down from a superior officer. Which means these aren't Paul's commands. He's simply delivering the commands from a superior officer. These commands come from God. You'll remember the Great Commission says that we're to go and make disciples, teaching them everything that I've commanded you to do. It doesn't say go and make disciples and offer suggestions about what people should do in their life. It doesn't say go and give advice to others about how to follow Jesus. It says you teach them what I've commanded. That word command comes from a king. A king that we have a responsibility to obey. It might would radically change our view of fighting sin if we viewed it as orders that come from a king. It might change our way of fighting sin when we hear suggestions and advice, not as suggestions and advice, but as commands that are being passed on from a king. Paul says, I trust that you're obeying my commands and I know that you're going to continue obeying my commands. As we share the truth, we have the responsibility to share the gospel with new people. But we have the responsibility to share the gospel continually over and over with people in our church that are already saved. That the gospel will speed ahead in their life. So that God can direct their hearts to the love of God, to the perseverance of Christ, as Paul talks about. We offer commands to each other when we pass on the word. Your king commands you through the word through pastoral leadership, and through discipleship relationships. We have the responsibility to be obedient just as this church was being obedient. As we wrap up, looking at verse 4, we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God, to the steadfastness of Christ. We've already talked about this. Jesus directs or makes straight or removes obstacles and hindrances He clears the way for us to be loved by God as we respond to the gospel and to love God ourselves as the gospel changes us. He clears the way for us to rely on the perseverance of Christ and also to persevere like him. This passage is all about how God does the saving, but it's also about how we get to participate in God's plan to save. We get to pray for it. We get to unleash God's plan to save by praying and asking God for it. And we get to jump in there and be a part of it. We get to be the legs for the gospel. We get to speed ahead. We get to tote the gospel into the end zone where it's honored and praised and celebrated by people that that, uh, believe the truth of the gospel. But praise be to God. He's the one that sets the stage. He's the one that clears the way. He's the one that gets the bad guys out of the way. He's the one that opens up hearts opens up the end zone for the gospel to come in. We follow that. We follow that way that's been cleared. We share the truth. It helps us to stand firm. 
as we pass the truth on to others. Our application this morning, God uses our prayers and our actions to clear the way for the gospel to go out. Will we respond obediently? God uses our prayers and our actions to clear the way for the gospel. Will we respond obediently? Meaning, are we going to pray for the salvation of others? Are we going to pray for each other as we try to share the gospel with others? Are we going to be faithful to carry the gospel to others? Are we going to prioritize that? Are we going to be the legs for the gospel so that it does speed ahead? So that it can be honored in this area? So that people in Sonoy do come to Christ just as God planned for them to before the beginning of the world? By praying, we change, we change their future. God responds to our prayers. Right now, they're on a course of, of, of hell. The Bible would say they are perishing. The Bible says that the gospel is foolishness to those that are perishing. But God answers prayers. And he allows people that previously thought the gospel to be foolish to see it as the life-giving thing that it is. Many of us have been praying for individuals to be saved for years, and it's been foolishness up to this point. But it may be that God uses the prayers of this church now to open the eyes of those individuals to where they do respond to the gospel. Will we pray from a gospel focus or a comfort focus? I want to wrap things up today by giving you an opportunity to pray. I think we would be, we would completely miss the point of this passage if we simply dismiss this morning without praying. God wants us to pray. To pray for his plan of salvation to happen. So I want to give you some opportunity right now on your own. To think about the individual that you've already shared with others in this church. That you want to see to come to Jesus through your efforts of sharing the gospel with them. I want to spend some time praying for those individuals. So you pray for the individual that you know God has laid on your heart to be intentional with the gospel about. And then I want you to pray for everyone else in this room who also has people in their hearts that they're wanting to share the gospel with. Tom and Jake mentioned them this morning. Pray that our church would be bold and faithful in sharing the gospel with others. That the gospel would speed ahead. That it would be honored by the individuals that we come in contact with.